welcome back to the Evolving Media Podcast. Podcast where we talk to some brilliant people about the changes in the media industry from the point of view of the storytellers, creators and producers in the industry. You can help this podcast immensely by subscribing to it, rating it on whatever platform you're listening to it on, and sharing it on your favorite social media platforms. It'll help us make more of these episodes, so if you have the time, please consider helping out. My guest uh, this week is the creative powerhouse that is Christadina. She's a writer, designer and director, running her own company, Universe Creation 101, and balancing her work as an educator, creating international labs, working as a senior interdisciplinary lecturer in remote and experimental practice, developing creative projects and currently writing a book. I'm delighted that she took some time off to have a chat about a very specific angle of the content and story development process, the need to develop from the start with the audience experience in mind. Links to the resources that come up in the discussion can be found in the description of this episode. Welcome. Hi Christian, welcome to the podcast. Very happy to have you here. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you for the invite, Simon. So listen, first off, uh, how's things in Australia? I'm just hearing that totally different from Midwest US, you're experiencing the worst heat waves in Australian history. How how are you coping? (laughs) Yes, it is hot in Australia, but I've actually moved back to Melbourne and Melbourne pretty much intersperses with its weather, you know, have a hot day. Uh, and then it breaks pretty quickly. So we suddenly have uh, a cool change. And so um, I'm actually quite, it's actually quite pleasant. <laughs> no, I, I personally am not, uh, I'm not feeling the heat. Although, um, yes, last week on the, was it 44 degrees, 111 degrees Fahrenheit? Oh, wow. um, but uh, I, I decided to go for a ride, um, which was a really silly decision. Um, but, but yes, in that heat, I thought, (laughs) I thought I could, um, I thought I could beat it before it got too harsh and I made sure I wore all white. Um, and, and of course lots of sunscreen. Um, yeah, the, the body just couldn't wait to get out of the sun most definitely by the time I got back. Mm. Yeah. We've been having yeah, we've been having minus 20 or something here in Finland. So, <laughs> so if you could just export some of that heat over here, we'd be very, very grateful. <laughs> so listen, this podcast is about, you know, storytelling, about how media is evolving and how, especially a lot about how uh, the relationship between creators, producers and the audience have been changing over the past uh, years and past decades and so forth and it's been it's it's a rapid change and it's driven by from all sides uh, audience habits but also new possibilities for creators and for producers and you've been focusing a lot about you know putting the audience experiences in the center of the design process so i mm. if we could talk a little bit about that like what's the difference when we're talking about developing like in quotation marks, a normal project and, <laughs> and, and a project that, that where you're looking at the audience's journey and the audience's experiences uh, as, as a central part of the design process. How do you view that? Well, I mean, yeah, you said uh, in quotation marks, normal. Yeah, of course, there is no normal. Um, yeah. There, yeah, there's just, there's just some people that have decided and, and agree that there is a better way to do it. 
Um, and some people follow along with that because they don't realize because, uh, you know, they, they agree with the rationale. Um, they, they don't think that there's other ways to do it um, or they think that there's possibly a high cost to doing something different. But there isn't a normal. There's just what people agree to do, you know, for, for a while. Uh, and that's what I find interesting is, is like, well, why did we agree on that? <laughs> you know? and, and is it helpful? Um, and, and this is a thing that's, that I've found as the years have gone by, learning through practice and researching history and researching what different art forms are doing, it's just uh, realizing that I could actually use uh, structures and processes that resonate with me um, and which may entail me to create new things. And, and, you know, coming back to your point, that has been this shift towards a audience oriented approach and I've come full circle back to an artist and audience combination there but there's been a few things that have happened along that journey and alternate reality games is one thing that really opened it up for me uh you know the uh the experiences the interactive experiences which are experienced live uh yeah. in in the world, you know, and I'm not telling this to you. I'm just, uh, <laughs> just, just sharing it for <laughs> yeah, for, for, sure. for yeah. someone. Yeah, um, you know, experience in the street, experience um, through emails, and and lots of different areas. Uh, and that's the thing that ignited me when it came to interactivity. It wasn't digital games, you know, in uh, earlier childhood, and that they just did not capture my imagination. It was the blend of the social and the real world and the um, the, the connection globally that, that really fired me up. And I've always been interested in, you know, why that has appealed to me, but also how I can create works that are meaningful to me and my audience, to both of us. And the other question of like, how can I change the world or as I've got older, at least my own world? And with that, I look out for things in creative practice, but also, you know, um, outside of creative practice. And there's been a few key points that have suddenly sort of ignited different, different understandings on this journey. And one of them is the in the startup scene, actually, the startup culture and the idea of uh, the customer development model. It was actually Stephen uh, Blank's book, The Four Steps to Epiphany, which was the, the key text for me in, in really opening this area up. And he just said that there's a lot of startups um, who focus on developing a product developing a, um, a piece of tech or something like that to sell. And the equivalency in our creative world is, you know, just focus on the film and the product and the craft of the product. Uh, but he said that there are the ones that he, the startups that he found that were the most successful were the ones that actually have a customer development model in which they try to understand, find out if you actually have a customer um, you know, before you actually put a whole lot of effort into spending time and money on a product. Well, that sounds reasonable. <laughs> that sounds reasonable. Yeah, it's like it makes complete sense now. But at the same time, when you're coming from a art world perspective, the whole idea of being driven entirely by what customers want mm -hmm. Um you know, seems deficient um, because it is in some ways. That's it's one of the uh, the problems. Well, not sort of problem. It's just a uh, startup culture does not have 
in its processes, the idea of what the creators are actually bringing to the table in some way. Um, it's, it's a bit leaning in the other direction. But that was one of the ones that sort of opened me up to, oh, hang on, I can, um, I can actually integrate the customer, as they were called, but people into my process. Mm-hmm. And, then it was, and then it was games after that. Um, uh, sort of going more into games and the playtesting that actually happens when you're developing a game because it involves interactivity and because that people actually have to act on things in order for it to progress. Yeah, you need to know ahead of time whether or not that is working. You can't it's very rare to be able to make a game without it actually having touching a player before you release it. So the whole model of playtesting as you're actually making, bringing the audience, bringing the players in very early was another influence there. But ironically, even though it has the player involved, it's often a culture that's very product oriented. They're crafting a game and they're finding out if it's getting the players to do the things they want. And then after that, it was actually a screenwriting approach. It was um, what she's called uh, the sequence technique, which was developed by Frank Daniel. Uh, and it was actually popularized by, um, by Frank um, Gulino. And with that technique, what they basically looked at once again was, gee, what are the most successful screenwriting plays that are out there? And what's, what's um, happening with all of them? And what they found was that they're actually considering the audience experience of the film as they're actually watching it, but they've embedded that into the writing process. And so with that, they created a structure, for instance, is breaking up a film into sequences. And each sequence is not, you know, what happens to the character necessarily. It's driven by what the audience is thinking about what will happen. And all of this is sort of coalesced, but I still I still felt um, I wasn't there yet. I know I was getting closer, but I wasn't there. And it was actually a education structure that the one that brought them all together. And this is one that was um, developed by a gentleman called um, Jack Mezirau. And this was actually in the 1970s when he was teaching, uh, he was doing Um, a lot of adult learning for women who were returning to study after major life events. So in the 1970s, this was a time when people were actually deciding, oh, so we can divorce? You know, (laughs) I think I'll go off and and live my own life now. Um, And what he noticed with these uh, women and and how their lives were were completely transformed was that there were patterns in what was happening with their transformation. And so he developed a structure of phases of transformational learning. So what happens when someone's worldview is transformed and what is needed for that to happen? And so since then, since the 1970s, there has been um, lots of development of this in education um, and beyond. And so it was it was actually that technique, which was the thing that clinched it for me. And I'll give you a quick quick example of, of why and I, I guess how. Yeah. So you're familiar with um an a um inciting incident? Yeah. You know, with a story. Yep. So an inciting incident, um, this is what, you know, we're sort of taught 
in storytelling um, to start our story with. And I'll read out a bit here from Blake Snyder's book, Save the Cat, because this is just an example of a a very uh, popular book that's influenced a lot of screenwriters and non-screenwriters around the world. Um, And so he describes it as the catalyst. Um, But he says here, he's giving examples from some films. The package that arrives in Romance in the Stone, which will send Joan Wilder to South America. It's the telephone call that informs Tom Cruise his father has died in Rain Man. It's the dinner in which Witherspoon's fiancé announces he's dumping her in Legally Blonde. These are the catalytic moments. The telegrams are getting fired, the catching the wife in bed with the other man, et cetera, et cetera. This is the things that basically change the world of the character. Now, in the transformational learning structure, the first step is called the disorienting dilemma. And it is in the real world. It is the moment when um, you divorce, for instance, you have a major job change, you, there's been a death of a loved one. Um, it's, it is basically precipitated you, your world as it is, um, can no longer exist. That you and the way you have conceived of the world has to change. You have to change. Uh, And it was at this point when I saw this, I suddenly realized, oh, hang on. When we're creating an inciting incident, it's an inciting incident that affects the character, but it's not an inciting incident for the audience or the player. And this is one of the examples of, of just how I find that the current models are about a particular way of seeing the world where you can only change if it's forced on you. And that change is only there for the characters, not for the audience. When we started this conversation, you said that um, people, creators, producers would are hesitant to approach this kind of uh, possibility or these opportunities because they perceive there to be costs involved, which I understand mm-hmm. perfectly. I mean, it's costs. It could be monetary costs and it could be um, uh, creative costs and it could be time-wise. It could obviously be very a lot of costs involved, right? Uh, but so... so from your point of view, why sh- would creators be interested in pursuing this? Why why should uh, producers and creators of content try to um, affect the audience in this way? Well, one thing I've learned is that you can't use the logic of one reality to take people to another one. So, for instance, if I say you'll make more money if you have a female lead in your film, then the person may make one film with a female lead, but they haven't changed their habits or their routines or their beliefs or values in any way. So there's actually um, a whole cultural shift that is needed uh, for that to happen. So, uh, and so therefore the reasoning for doing this, you know, is not, um, hey, you'll make more money or it's the only way to do this um, because it's not. There are lots of structures out there and for very good reason uh, because you need to uh, actually pick a structure that suits what you're trying to do, suits, suits you as a creator and what you are trying to achieve with the work that you're creating. So this is for people who realize that Their their creative work is a reflection of their inner world, of their inner work. For people who want to find uh, meaning in the the projects that they make as a reflection of what they have actually gone through and that they want to pass that on as a gift for other people to facilitate it uh, for other people. Once again, 
this is about choice for the audience. It's not about forcing transformation. Um, this is, uh, you know, specifically for projects um, and for audiences that are have that change stance, have are actually uh, wanting to go through a change. Now, I would imagine that if you can affect change within the audience and or you can you can help the audience to not just experience what you have created, but actually engage with it and have that change how they uh, relate to, to your story, then that would foster more loyalty that would, uh, since, I mean, if you engage in something, you obviously become more interested in that thing. Unless you uh, rebel against it, which is another side of the coin, I guess. So is this a way to build a more longer-reaching story, a more longer-reaching narrative over time? And and how to take that into consideration? Yes, exactly. It's um, The entire process does take time. You know, it's like uh, you, you can't completely change your worldview, for instance, in 10 minutes or um, two hours. Um, you, you can have a transformation of perspective, but then there's the integrating it. Um, then there's the, you know, there's the pushing against it. There's the considerations, there's the practicing, um, and, and moving beyond that. And this is where it overlaps with, uh, with the work that, you know, I've been doing with cross media all these years of, of, of not seeing a project as being a single moment in time, but one, you know, which uh, correlates what's happening in service design, where it's actually an entire uh, journey. There's the point in which they discover the project is the, is the point in which they're um, considering to go ahead with the project. And there's what happens after the project um, and the follow-up material. So you are creating a services, if you like, or an entire experience approach. But you don't have to necessarily do all of it. Um, you can just do parts of it and point people to other uh, projects and resources that do other things. Now, I had a, a, a former colleague of mine on this podcast a month ago, just about, and uh, Thomas Lind, and he was talking a lot about the uh, the need to reach out to audiences but also to find out who your audience is, which seems yeah. also like a very natural part of any creative process, right? Um, the more you know about who you're trying to target or who you're trying to reach or who you're trying to affect, the better you can create stuff that will actually accomplish what you try to achieve. Uh, but mm. in this setting, I mean, uh, are there projects that would be more suited to this vein of storytelling than others? And... and uh, is it a, a requisite that you really know who your audience is or is it a possibility to throw stuff out there and see what happens? I mean, that's always a possibility, but is it something that could have any success to it? <laughs> I like that last bit. It, could it have any success? <laughs> um, <laughs> the <laughs> the um, uh, yeah, so one of the things that has helped me a lot in understanding audience, because, you know, often audience, uh, understanding who your audience segments are and, and all of that is uh, can be quite shallow. You know, uh, it's like, oh, they share an interest here or they they uh, like the art form. Um, 
But with this approach, uh, the thing that I, one of the approaches that, um, sorry, one of the methods that I found really helpful is one from uh, social social media marketing, but the term is misrepresentative because it's not actually marketing in social media. It's actually um, social issues marketing. And what they found was that you need to target your campaigns um, appropriately to four different types of audiences that are that correlate with four different change phases. And those are people that are in pre-contemplation, so they haven't yet thought about changing uh, for various reasons. They have no idea that it's a possibility or they, they, they just don't think it will apply to them. Um, then there are the ones who are actually contemplating it uh, and they're weighing up the pros and cons about whether or not it's something for them. Uh, there are the ones that are beyond contemplation and are interested in moving further but don't quite know how. And then there are the ones who uh, are on the road who are attempting to do it but need assistance in continuing the actual journey, the maintenance of the journey. Uh, and I find you know, that sort of structure really helpful because you know, one of the things they talk about is, is do not aim for the people who are pre-contemplation um, uh, because there's a whole lot of work that has to go into that. But also I don't think it's possible to actually target people who aren't interested. They need to drive themselves they need to actually make the decision to want to do it themselves. So I find that uh, really helpful. And then, and then in terms of what project is appropriate, it's a case of, you know, what your what's the the topic of worldview shift that you're actually looking at, um, and that's based on your own personal experiences. You, you can't create these kind of works if you haven't gone through that worldview change. This is why it's both sides of the table. It's audience-oriented and artist-oriented. And, and yeah, and then it's just the, the story that's actually um, appropriate for this. And, and we have so many different models and structures. You know, there's, there's over 60 different structures out there. That's just counting all the different structures for genres that's out there. We've got um, – Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey, Christopher Vogler's Hero's Journey, Mar uh, Maureen Murdoch's Heroine's Journey, Kim Hudson's Virgin's Journey, Steve Kaplan's Comic Hero's Hero's Journey. Like we've got so many structures, yeah. you know, and and but for very good reason because you fit them to the project and what you're trying to achieve and the thematic point that is going on. And it's the same with this. Like this is a another structure. The first person transformation journey is another structure that you use for particular projects. Just a final question. People listening to this and, and, and finding that this is something that they would need or want to start uh, integrating in what they're creating and what they're um, producing and what they're trying to reach people with. How do you get started? What are, I mean, your journey has been quite long up to this point where you have this knowledge and you know what different possibilities there are. But how do you start out? What are the first steps and what are the first mistakes to make if you're interested in, <laughs> in pursuing this? I am actually bringing it out as a book. So there will be taking people through all the different steps. Uh, so there will be a resource in which I'm gathering all of the studies and all of the projects that help illuminate this beyond you know my own epiphanies there but in for now i think what is the most important thing that you could do 
is, as I said, you can't make these kind of projects unless you've actually experienced the worldview shift or in the process of experiencing the worldview shift that you're talking about. Most likely the latter because um, it helps it helps to discover it as you're actually going. Um, and so with that, you need to document what you're actually going through at each point because as you're actually progressing through major worldview shifts, you sometimes forget, you you stretch so far that you forget the way you saw things in the very early days. And you need those very early perceptions in order to be there for your audience as they move through. And so it's, it's a case of uh, note-taking and being a very observant of the processes that you're going through, but also researching others, research, research what other people have done, interviewing them, all of that. So you can be doing the groundwork for, um, that provides the, the grit, the substance um, that you then draw on once you're actually applying that to a structure. That makes total sense. Uh, it's like if, if you want to start live streaming something, you need to try it out from all the different angles, from a participatory um, chat member to a streamer, etc. So so you get all the you get all the knowledge. But to document it all, that's one thing that I think many people, me including, are pretty bad at. You know, I, I'll remember <laughs> this. In what two years time? Yeah, of course I will. <laughs> yeah. That's that's gonna happen. Yeah, it's it's always this weird it's this weird thing when you suddenly have an insight and you feel as if it'll be with you forever, right at that moment. And so it it sort of works against the spirit of note taking because you feel as if yeah, it's 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 uh, tattooed. On your consciousness in some way, I guess the essence of it is, but it isn't. It isn't there. Like it, it, it will, it will wash off in the rain. It will wash off over time. And so, learning to capture those uh, is really important. And this is where, uh, you know, techniques. Um, you know, for instance, from um, from you know the wonderful book, The Artist's Way, using your morning morning pages. Uh, you know, sort of get into the habit of uh, writing your things down, having a notebook as you're running around. I personally use the notes app in my on my desktop and on my phone. I think a lot of a lot of creators will be in the habit of writing things down, but I think writing down your perspective shifts. Um, that's that's the critical thing. Christy, thank you so much for being on this podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. And as as I, we said before we started recording, we could talk for hours and hours about all sorts of topics. But uh, I'd be very happy to have you back on the podcast in the future um, as well. Hey, thank you very much for inviting me and for, for talking with me uh, about this. Um, I've really enjoyed hearing your questions and, um, and yeah, we can con- continue chatting after and hearing your thoughts. Thanks, Simon. Thank you, Christy. Bye. Bye.